Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Second to last day of Joan's vacation. So if you love being here with me, let's relish the good time. And if you're looking forward to Joan coming back, and there's no reason you can't do both, then I can promise you, uh, to the best of my ability, we're expecting Joan on Monday. And I know that you will be happy to have her with you once again. So much going on in the news. Um, so much. Uh, local stuff. There's uh, there's legal action on the question of whether crisis pregnancy centers uh, have to tell you that they're not really offering the range of services that they imply that they're offering. Uh, and and I don't usually talk about specifically about the issue of choice because nobody that my theory about this this is right up there with my law of one more thing where I think you say your best stuff before one more thing. So if you say one more thing, I immediately hang up on you because I want you to look good. I also don't usually talk about choice because people's views are closely held, dearly held, and they tend not to change unless they're pregnant. So, and pregnant unhappily or pregnant dangerously. So I don't. But the crisis pregnancy center issue, which got um, a a block, if you will, uh, last August, um, the problem was that a judge blocked the rule that said that they they couldn't claim that they were doing what they were doing. Now it seems um, that order will stand, but you can sue them. If they cause you harm, apparently, for false advertising. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more today. Um, But I'm wondering, and I thought I would ask, if you've ever had an experience with a medical provider who, not just for pregnancy, heaven knows there are so many other other opportunities for this kind of thing to happen, because there's so much medical advertising to you directly now. You're being advertised drugs, and you're being advertised surgeries, and you're being advertised vitamin treatments, and all kinds of things are being promoted to you, and all that's really standing between you and and just anything goes is the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and the you know they're under siege right now. And again, it, it travels back to the choice uh, debate, where in Texas, you may have heard us talking about this with law professor David Levine, where in Texas uh, there's a judge who's decided that he knows better than the Food and Drug Administration and the entire medical establishment uh, which drugs are safe for women to take or anyone to do. He's just decided. He doesn't like this effect, and so therefore he's found a loophole. The group that sued uh, Professor uh, David said, uh, Professor Levine said, um, they don't even have any standing. They're none of them taking this drug. They none of them took this drug. And on that basis, the case will likely be thrown out. But there's very little between you and medical safety. And if the FDA is somehow shoved overboard, you're just going to be on your own trying to figure out what's a reasonable course of action. And the medical profession in general does the very best it can, but it, it doesn't do a great job of policing itself. 
And I'm wondering if you personally have been in one of those situations where something was promoted to you, advertised to you, um, and you bought into it, and it turned out that it was at the very least not effective and perhaps did you harm one of the things a lot of people are doing is they're going for these full body scans, which will which will find something. <laughs> the question is, for a lot of medical professionals who are ethical, they'll tell you that we find some stuff we really need to take action on. But on the other hand, we find a lot of stuff that throws people into a panic that really you don't need to do anything about. So I'm wondering if that's happened to you. It's also very interesting um, when people pay for stuff themselves. If you're in a position, for example, where you have a, a really high deductible in your insurance, what kind of self-policing do you do? Do you say, you know what, I'm not going to go to the ER, I'm going to go to urgent care? Because there's definite, there are definitely market levers pressing on you, whether you're aware of them or not, that are sending you to the place that's best for the insurance company to have you go. And one of the places we're going to be seeing some of that play out is with these crisis pregnancy centers that are set up to make sure that you hang on to your pregnancy in a crisis. And by the way, they vastly outnumber um, healthcare facilities that offer a full range of pregnancy services, including abortion. Because, hey, if you're not ever going to recommend abortion, then you don't need hospital admitting privileges and you don't need a whole medical. You just need to hand a package of diapers out and some formula and say, you know, you can do this, little girl. You can do this. Most of the women seeking to terminate pregnancies already have at least one child that they are providing for. And for various reasons, they cannot reasonably support another one. So these these centers, you know, will do everything that they can and skirt right up to the edge. And they get you and you'll see the signs on every bus stop. And that's just one form of medical I will, I will use the technical term here, phony baloney advertising. What about all of these vein surgeries that people are being offered? It's turning out that a lot of the surgeries that are being offered are actually leaving people in worse condition than when they started and weren't necessary in the first place. But doctors advertise them. They can do them. There was recently a story of a, a woman who was um, a plastic surgeon and doing breast augmentation, breast reduction, breast, all kinds of breast surgery. And her big thing was to, to film herself and, and perform on YouTube and, and TikTok while she was doing all these surgeries. And uh, she was sued and sued, and she finally lost her license. Finally. I think she's in Ohio. It's really remarkable the way that medicine has transformed. At one point, it seemed that we were too little informed about the care that we were getting. I mean, there were doctors who didn't even believe in telling terminally ill patients that they were terminally ill. There are still such doctors. There are doctors who cannot stand to say, um, there's nothing more that we can do. 
We'd like to make you comfortable. There are doctors who say, well, you know, you could try this, but the odds of it working are very, very slim, and it's going to be very, very unpleasant. And then talking about what will really be involved and letting you make the choice. So we've moved from having having people just sort of strapped to the medical conveyor belt. I think of it as like going through a car wash sometimes if you're admitted to a facility. You know how when you drive through those the, the automatic car wash, you drive forward, you inch forward, you inch forward, you inch forward, and whack, you can feel your car being locked in, and then it's not up to you. You can't steer, you can't brake, you can't accelerate, you're just on that conveyor belt. Sometimes the medical system can feel like that. But the news today, and I guess it may be news that came out a day or so ago, that you'll be able to sue these clinics for providing false information. And sometimes all they want to do is slow you down in a state where, for example, you're only allowed to terminate a pregnancy until a certain amount of time, uh, even if your health is in jeopardy. They will do everything to slow you down. A lot of them will lie about how far along you are. They'll show you pictures that aren't your pictures. They'll, they, they're on a, literally on a mission. And so they provide information that may not be relevant or true or appropriate. And we had we had passed some kind of legislation here in Illinois. Uh, Governor Pritzker back in July. Let me get that that law over here where I can read it a little bit for you so you can hear how that came down. Uh, Governor Pritzker had signed a bill in July to, uh, strengthening protections against misinformation at the crisis pregnancy centers and that that was that was curtailed that was curtailed uh, a judge blocked it but but it was a temporary block and you can sue them if they, if you find out that they falsely represented themselves and that is the new information that's just sort of come down to us if they tell you that they will offer something and then they don't offer it. But it's going to it's going to be a, I predict a truly awful lawsuit that actually gets this out in front of people. In the meantime, thank goodness if you're listening to this in Illinois and live in Illinois, thank goodness you live in Illinois where you have some some choices about what you're going to do. It really is interesting that that uh, people are still it's almost like the Nigerian prince scandal. Like, everybody knows now that there is no Nigerian prince who needs you to take out money for him. But so far, I don't think there are a lot of people who are, um, well, I guess if you have a family doctor, family health provider, you go there. But if you're not connected, usually because you don't have much money or many resources or possibly transportation, if you're not connected to the medical community in general, then when something like this happens, you go looking and you may not be very sophisticated about what people mean when they say, we offer a full range of services. That's kind of like, you know, the jumbo size. Well, what exactly is the jumbo size and what exactly is the full range? You don't know. So if you've ever found yourself 
uh, hooked to one of those conveyor belts where they told you, you know, they were going to do, um, they were going to do a little assessment. And then all of a sudden you ended up with $600 worth of aloe lotions and vitamins and some kind of compress you're supposed to stick on your eyes. And because that's really the gray area now. You have a little sports injury and the next thing you know, somebody says, hey, I know what you need. You need your veins routed out, just like your plumbing. And they always, these the, these people selling these kinds of procedures, and again, you hear them advertised all over the place. Can't sleep? Allow us to route out your nose. Can't walk? Allow us to scour out your veins. And sometimes these things are what's needed. Sometimes these are legitimate procedures for the purpose. But, but when you're just selling them and people come in and they say, I know what I need. Well, really? Do you now? And so, and, and, and doctors are, are unschooled on how to communicate with people who come in. And people, I, I have someone in my family, I will not name that person, who is absolutely willing to take any kind of pill and absolutely unwilling to make any kind of behavioral change. If you said to this person, you could take a pill with all kinds of side effects, or you could simply amend your diet, and I'm just I'm just giving a for instance here. This isn't the, the real situation. You could take ten pills a day and they'll and they'll irritate your stomach and they'll make you sleepy, or you could give up fish. The person would say, Geez, you know, I, I think I'll take the pills. I like fish. I just can't stop myself when when I when I when someone's cooking fish I have to eat all of it as much of it as I want. And I I'm I'm not immune from this by the way. I could lose a couple of pounds and I've had doctors say, you know, well, let's have a conversation about that. Why don't you give up anything that comes from an animal? And, and there's no moderation. There's no like, well, can I have an egg once a week? <laughs> uh, so it's very difficult to have this conversation now and for doctors to say, well, you know, you can take the pill or well, you can have the procedure, but, but. So I'm wondering if you've ever had that experience where you where you interacted with the medical community and you had a list of things you wanted or you interacted because there was an ad or you went in with a list of of treatments that you'd heard about on the radio or the TV set or your neighbor down the block. And how did that conversation go? Just about 19 minutes after two o'clock. It's the Joan Esposito show. I am Turi with you, writer like the truck. And uh, yes, that is my podcast. And yes, that is my book. Um, But today I'm here with you right now on the Joan Esposito Show, live, local and progressive. Tom Hartman. In the 42 years since the start of the Reagan revolution, bought off politicians have so altered our tax code that $51 trillion has left the pockets, the homes, the bank accounts, and the retirement accounts of working-class Americans and ended up in the money bins of the morbidly rich. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. 
Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 20 minutes after 2 o'clock, I am Tori Ryder. Coming up in the show today, we're going to hear, and you may not have been aware, it is Firefighters Cancer Awareness Month. Why do they need such a thing? It's a little bit horrifying. You're going to find out exactly why such a thing is needed. Also, we're going to, remember I told you I wanted to talk with somebody about what's needed at DCFS because they have a new leader-in-chief starting Feb 1. We've got that, thanks, Julia Shu. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the fancy names for COVID in case you're having trouble keeping track. And a little union talk also. And your calls and texts are welcome. 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. So in case you missed it, um, officially, as of a couple of weeks ago, the Illinois law Targeting deceptive anti-abortion ministries is officially scrapped. And if you suffer at the hands of one of those clinics, you can only sue them for misrepresenting. Because they have, and, and, and I guess that makes sense, they have the right to advertise their services for crisis pregnancies. They are free to use any means to reach potential clients. So the law that bans deceptive practices, which was passed after Roe v. Wade was scrapped, is over. And your only hope, if you are damaged in such case, would be to say, um, I can sue as a consumer of this service and say that I was harmed. Have you ever been on the receiving end of one of these services. Uh, This one from uh, Michigan. Um, Speaking of phony baloney, there's a woman I know who had a crisis pregnancy as a teen. She contacted a crisis pregnancy center and was roped in. The odd thing was they wanted to know how far along she might be on the first phone call, were anxious to help her, and they wouldn't make an appointment for her to come in for a test for a couple of months. They were intentionally delaying until she was at the point of no return. Then they put on the pressure when they finally saw her, promised her all kinds of help, put that off too until two weeks from her due date, gave her one bag of diapers, plenty of nasty stained old older baby clothes, and one halfway decent layout set with a couple of cotton fleece blankets, towels, and washcloths. Whoopee, <laughs> writes the texter. Um, they also refused to provide any other help after she gave birth. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. It's very sad. I mean, if you're going to promise help, you should deliver the help you promise. At the point, I'm I'm at the point, by the way, um, I, I don't know if I should mention, you know what, I'm going to tell you a little hint about my idea to uh, help with immigrants, where um, many religious leaders are, are preaching that we need to be welcoming people, and yet although many, many, many faith-based ministries are stepping up and taking responsibility, it's a little shocking how many are not. So I have an idea I'm just going to do because I was inspired. You know what I love about this show? 
I was inspired uh, last week by Katarina, who just took it on herself to start doing stuff with a group of people she met on Facebook. So I thought and thought and thought about what can I do? And I've come up with an idea. And I will tell you about it later. If I tell you about it now, it might not work. But I'm sure there's something you can do. I was talking with a friend of mine this morning. She and I have a lot of overlap in our views and then a lot of areas where we don't completely agree. But we were able to talk this morning about the areas where we overlap. She and I have slightly different views on uh, how to control um, unofficial, illegal arrivals of people. But and this this is like what we were talking about with Dashka the other day. Um, there are areas where you can work together. There are areas where you can. And she and I agreed that these kids that are being brought here by their families need some stuff. So that's my little hint to you about the stuff. That's the stuff. You need the stuff. So I've got an idea about how to get a bunch of stuff for the kids. I'll let you know how that goes. I was talking with a younger person, someone in his 20s, about that. I'm circling back now to the subject I wanted to ask you about, about medical care that's advertised, what you're advertised versus what you get. We're seeing a lot of hospitals um, no longer offering services that they used to advertise because it's too risky for them to now provide those services. And so a lot of those services are being outsourced. I mean, risky in terms of their liability if something goes wrong. We've seen uh, hospitals close down their labor and delivery because that's a very vulnerable point. And if something goes wrong, doctors can be sued. We're also seeing a lot of high technology medical procedures outsourced to these surgery centers. You may recall that the brilliant comedian Joan Rivers died in one of these surgery centers. And I don't want to speak through my hat, even though I have my hat with me today because it's cold. I don't want to speak through my hat about uh, what the end of that investigation was. But initially, the speculation was that she was at a surgery center and something went wrong and they couldn't get her to a hospital in a reasonable amount of time and her life could have been saved. And again, I, I don't I don't know if that's particularly true in her case because she'd had so many of these procedures. But I do know that when I hear women saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to have I'm going to have a home birth because that's what's natural. There's a part of me that says all the advertising that these medical facilities do to get you to come in and have your baby with them. What they really should be go- doing, if I were doing the commercials, I would just waltz a camera through a cemetery and show them all the women who died in childbirth a hundred years ago. That's what I'd be showing them. You want to see what a real crisis pregnancy looks like? It's when you're delivering. But those places that are tricking women into coming in, they're not offering, they're not offering those services. They're not offering an opportunity for women to get high quality labor and delivery care in hospitals. They're not. So if they trick you and you're damaged by it, after it's all too late, then you can turn around and try to sue them. It's too bad. Governor Pritzker really tried. Illinois' legislature really tried. 
sometimes you just lose. It's about 2.28. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. And we will be finding out a little bit about one of the one of the hard parts of being a firefighter that you may not have thought about on WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. 231, the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder. In for Joan. She's back Monday, so you have me today and tomorrow. This this headline came across um, my computer screen, and I thought, now, why are the firefighters raising money for cancer awareness? And then I read a little more, and the gentleman you are about to meet will explain in detail why this is so important. Please be introduced to Chuck Sullivan. Welcome to WCPT, Mr. Sullivan. Glad to have you. Thank you, Tori. It's, uh, I, I appreciate you having us on. And you are the president of the Associated Firefighters of Illinois, and this is very much in your in your heart right now. The firefighters are holding. Uh, is this? I think it's National um, Cancer Awareness Month in in January, and it's not. You do you do a lot of things for a lot of random people, but this is for your brothers and sisters in uniform. You want to talk a little bit about why it's needed and what it is. Absolutely. So just a little bit of background about um, the Associated Firefighters of Illinois and our International Association of Firefighters. The International Association of Firefighters headquartered in Washington, D.C., and represents about 350,000 firefighters and paramedics across the United States and and Canada. Um, And then closer to home, the Associated Firefighters of Illinois. We're the state organization that represents about 16,000 firefighters and paramedics in the state of Illinois, including the city of Chicago, um, you know, all the way from Quincy to, to Danville and then all the way down to Carbondale, for example, um, in 228 different communities across our state. So, so there are a lot of two you. Years there, of, there are a lot of you. There, there are. Okay. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Okay. Um, so about, about two years ago, our state association at our convention um, passed a resolution that recognized the month of January as Cancer Awareness Month. As did our international association of, of firefighters. And, and, and you, you guys have this is what I want to get to. You guys have what we call in talk radio a personal connection to the topic, and that is because now I want you to explain like why cancer. Why would that be something you guys would care a lot about? Sure. So obviously, you know, each one of our brothers and sisters uh, in the fire service understand when they take, you know, that oath and, and serve uh, or, you know, agree to serve and protect the community that they work in. We understand it's a dangerous job. There's no question about that. I think the public would agree to that. Oh, yeah. And we we understand that, you know, on a shift. We may very well make the ultimate sacrifice. That's a given. Yes. Um, what we didn't really sign up for, we understand we're going to, you know, operate in toxic environments. We're going to be around chemicals. Um, but the just in the last decade, the number of occupational cancers 
which, um, which is now is the leading cause of our line of duty death in the fire service um, for, for a variety of reasons. But just at one quick um, statistic, yes, 63% of the firefighter line of duty deaths in the United States and Canada in the last two years. So three, there was 572 line of duty deaths, 361 of those deaths were duty related um, cancer. So okay, let me pause you right there. So let me let me pause you right there because that's a that's a shocking statistic. I think for the public, the first time that we really became aware of the hazards and the, and the outcomes of facing these hazards that firefighters were facing was after the September 11th tragedy. And one of the people who really brought it to the fore was John Stewart, who said, "You know, you may not get sick right away from this stuff that you're." exposed to, but it's cumulative and it will happen. And if you're exposed in a in an urgent situation to a whole lot of it, it's almost inevitable that would it would happen. Is he the person who really uh, spurred firefighters themselves to start looking at the data? Or did you already have this information and he just made it public? I, I think he was instrumental in making it public. Um, our International Association of Firefighters um, created a, a health and safety department uh, and, and partnered with a number of different universities and the cancer research network, firefighter cancer research network, to really drill down and, and figure out what exactly um, was causing this, this high alarming number of of cancer uh, within our, our ranks. But definitely John Stewart made it very, very public, which was good for us. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many firefighters you know, but just by a profession and um, we're very uh, <laughs> humble people. We're not one to you know be very braggadocious. We don't want to like to talk about ourselves. You'll often hear us say, we're just doing our job or we're not doing anything another firefighter wouldn't do. Um, so it's, I wouldn't say it's difficult for us to talk about ourselves, but this is something that's very, very important to to us. And our our goal, obviously, is you know, like everybody else, to eliminate cancer. But for sure, we can take necessary precautions. Um, you know, when we're on the job. So let's talk about some of those precautions. And by the way, when it comes to talking about it, you're doing a fine job. And I'm guessing that in any group of firefighters, there's always one that you guys accuse of running off at the mouth. That pick that one to talk about it in public. <laughs> sure. Deputize sure. that person, that man or that woman to to come out and say, you know. So um, let's talk about uh, the the hazards you're exposed to when you go out to the scene of a fire and the fact that you are also being exposed to carcinogens in the firehouse, which I hadn't even thought about until I read about this Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. Could you could you speak to, in any order, those two things? Sure. Sure. So, and just as recently as last summer, so July of, well, actually it's now two years ago, July of 2022, the International Agency of Research on Cancer, which is a part of the World Health Organization, reclassified our actual profession, the profession of firefighting, as a group one, the highest group as carcinogenic to, to humans. It was the highest carcinogenic 
carcinogen. I can't say that. See, word. that's how you choose. Hazard. That's how you choose who's going to speak in public. You give everybody make everybody say carcinogenic ten times and see right. who comes out on top. I got yeah. it. It's carcinogenic. So firefighters are, are exposed to more carcinogens. I'm a talk show host. I can Correct. say that very nicely, very often. I'll do it for you. And uh, and and that hard data resulted in what? So it actually puts us, our profession, actually, the classification, group one, puts us on par with, uh, for example, tobacco and benzene uh, being carcinogenic to humans. So just the fact that you're a firefighter then puts you in, in group one. So, um, you know, like I said, our international, our state association, we're obviously committed to uh, providing firefighters with the, you know, the best poss- possible methods uh, available to us. And so when we go on a, a call, or actually we'll start in the fire station itself, um, there are a number of things we can do within the, within the fire station. For example, I'm sure most people have seen a fire station that has a, an engine, a truck, or an ambulance, um, and they're started up in within that fire station. It would be like starting your car in your garage. There's an, a, a, a high uh, volume of diesel fumes that are coming, you know, out of those engines and trucks. So we have encouraged our local governments, whether it's the city of Chicago or you know, pick a city, Naperville. And they've been very, very um, proactive, and I'll give the local governments credit, in reducing their, their contractions, for lack of a better term, that will capture those diesel fumes and pump them outside. Can I ask, um, can you know, I, can I, can I ask a really sure. silly question, I guess? I've noticed, because I live very close to a fire station, and I've noticed that the, that it, the firefighters take a great deal of, of pride in backing these huge trucks into the fire station garage. And I know they want to leave in a hurry. However, it seems to me that since the fire truck has its filthy part in the back, it would make more sense if they pulled headfirst in and, and learned how to back up faster, better when they have to leave. Because as you just point out, you get a snoot full of diesel every time one of those trucks starts up, wouldn't it be healthier? How much time would you lose if you had to back out of the fire station so that when you started up or when you pulled in, the tailpipe was facing out? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a legitimate question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with tradition. But when you're once you're parked within the garage, if you will, or in the fire station, that's when the firefighter actually puts this device on the exhaust. Um, it, and it, it once they pull out, it automatically ejects off of that exhaust. So um, had they. It's much, again, I, I don't know, maybe a minute. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to back, especially in the city of Chicago, trying to back a, a fire vehicle out and then going on a call. But um, to your point, I think a lot of it has to do with tradition. But the very fact now that these contraptions, um, these diesel exhaust fume uh, vacuums, if you will, 
allow us to still back in and, and still respond. In well, I love looking at your shiny fire trucks. And I will tell you honestly that when I was a younger, juicier person in the city of Chicago, my girlfriends and I loved walking around the neighborhoods and seeing the shiny fire trucks sure. and the shiny firefighters working out in front of their shiny fire trucks in the summer weather. But I'm not I'm not a fan of tradition at the cost of your health. So I'm going to lobby for you guys to back in and say 60 <laughs> seconds, you know, Get the ambulance there first. Fine. You want to back the, if you want to pull the ambulance in backwards, great. But the trucks take the 60 seconds, save your lives. Okay. Let's talk about beyond the diesel. What else Mm -hmm. is going on in the firehouse that is hazardous to you before you ever leave to deal with the emergency? Um, a lot of times, and it, this probably goes, I mean, this goes back, you know, probably a century, but as recently as even two decades ago, 20 years ago, uh, if your fire helmet had some smoke or soot or some burned portion of your helmet, it made you um, that experienced salty firefighter. Uh, and much like just the bunker coats and the bunker pants that we wear as well, our, our personal protective equipment, ah. um, it, it was a badge of honor almost to, you know, go to a fire and your helmet looks like it's obviously been used, right? I bet so, now you over, know. What do you know now that you right, didn't know then? Right. Now, it's just holding in carcinogens, um, and, you know, that can be absorbed into your skin. Uh, we have a Nomex hood that a lot of people are familiar with NASCAR. That's where the fire service actually got the idea, the Nomex hood that the car, the race car drivers wear. Huh. Um, we, we stole that idea from them. Good. Um, so we, we want to make sure that we're washing those on a very regular basis. Our bunker gear um, contains PFAS, and that's a big term that's been used. What in the is last that? Five what, what, years. what is that? It actually it stands for polyfluoral alkyl substances, and it's a uh, it's like a large family of uh, chemical manufactured chemicals, and they've actually been in use in the industry and quite frankly consumer products worldwide probably since like the fifties or or sixties. They don't. They don't naturally occur, um, you know, due to its... Like, and what, what are they the used use, for at the firehouse? Are they used for polishing the truck, or what, what are they for? They're, they're actually, it's, um, it's in our bunker gear. It's in our oh. fire coats and fire pants oh. that, that we that we wear. Oh, boy. And they don't break, yeah, they don't break down easily uh, in the environment. And obviously, you know, it's, it's toxic to, uh, to humans. So if you want to touch on that real quickly, the, our bunker gear, everything that we have um, from our fire engines, their specifications um, that, that must be met by the National Fire Protection Agency, the NFPA. They kind of, they are like the, um, uh, the Bible of the fire service. Every local government and fire department looks to the NFPA for guidelines, and they're made up. The NFPA is made up of a number of different committees, including manufacturers of these um, of our equipment. Okay, so so let's equipment. skip forward. So the equipment itself is is poisoning you, even when it's not getting burned or, or melting. The equi- just it off gases stuff that's bad for you. Is what you're saying? That's correct. Ah, yes, our, our actual bunker gear. So we've, we've kind of found that out in the last 
10 years. How, and there isn't currently, there isn't much, currently a replacement. Okay. So there's nothing you can do yeah. right now. And so that's, no. uh, that's a conversation I, now that people are having, I guess, about what can they use instead. All right. Now, right. uh, you leave the firehouse. And by the way, I was going to ask this question, but it came in on the chat that there are now some fire stations where the truck just pulls through door in the front, door in the back. Kind of like, uh, kind of like those long johns, you know, flap in the back, flap in the front. Right. Yeah, so right. that eliminates that problem. So when you build your new firehouses, there, I assume, are going to be some changes made, as the old uh, song goes. So um, now you are on your way to an emergency. You get mm-hmm. there. What hazards in terms of carcinogens may await you and what methods do you have to avoid inhaling or getting them on your skin? Um, So obviously when we arrive at the scene, you know, we're going to be, some people like to say fully encapsulated. Once you're going into uh, a toxic environment, you're going to have every single square inch of your skin covered. And in addition, we have a, an air pack um, that consists of um, typically it's a, it, about 30 minutes of the air that you and I are breathing right now is bottled up. A lot of people think it's just straight oxygen. It's just breathing air that you and I are breathing right now, bottled up in that bottle. I, on the I back. work in a radio and station. You want to? You don't want to breathe this air either. Let me just tell you. Okay, <laughs> soundproof room, not so great ski, but keep going. Right. Yes, I got right. you. Right, right, right. So, I mean, obviously, you know, we have a mask on, and that's to protect uh, our, you know, our respiratory tract, lungs, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, and then. Um, what back to an earlier point so what we back to the fire station real quickly if you don't mind i don't mind a a number of for you know for the last i don't forever uh, as long as people can remember it was a thing to take your bunker pants which are then around your boots and put them next to your bunk because you know a number of fire departments work 24-hour shifts they do have an opportunity to sleep you know but you know get up and down you know five or six times a night to go on calls it was common practice to put your boots next to your bed and bring it into the bunk room to bring it into the actual fire station. So we've gotten, you know, tried to educate our members to keep everything kind of in the, in the hot zone, if you will. And that's where the truck sits, where all your equipment is. Um, obviously, you know, you're taking a shower after you get back from the call. Sure. Um, so there's a, a number of different things still back in the fire station that we can, you know, do to, to prevent uh, cancer. I think that it's good you mentioned this because it's important for people to understand that in, in addition to asking the public, and we'll get to this in a minute, what the public can do to assist, it's nice to hear that you guys are educating your, and I say guys meaning every gender, uh, that you guys are educating sure. yourselves and your fellow firefighters as to some basic steps that you can take to minimize risk for yourselves. And certainly that hot zone, everyone has learned, um, I think, from COVID, some of this area, clean zone, hot zone. My own kid who in college became an EMT because his university ran a New York City um, ambulance and he wanted oh, nice. to. Yeah, he's a good kid. So um, he, when everything was shut down for COVID, he came back to Chicago, worked in an emergency room and 
we all know now. I mean, we, we were basically stripping him naked at the back door and, and hosing uh-huh. him down right after that. But if, if, if the public can do that, then surely the firefighters can learn some version of that in order to minimize their risk. And I'm glad. How, how is that education happening? Is that when, when people do refresher training or is that the fire chief? Uh, how does that work, that you educate yourselves on the latest prevention techniques for you? Yeah, um, many fire departments have their own, like, health and safety uh, committee that, you know, obviously we have a number of different presentations and PowerPoints and that we get from either the International Fire Chiefs Association, the International Association of Firefighters, um, or there's the Firefighter Cancer Network that has a tremendous amount of resources that, that we use that we then share with our local affiliates and, and local fire departments. Okay, so it's, good. All right, um, now it's, let's it's go. slowly but surely getting the word out. I'm glad, and I hope this helps, um, and it'll be on a podcast too, so you can hear yourself looking all fancy on the radio. Yeah. Um, So now tell me, you get to the fire, you don't even necessarily know what hazards are burning. Are there things that your protective gear cannot filter out? If you show up at some kind of factory and it's making some kind of toxic waste or there's a truck spill uh, and you may not, or a train spill, I remember some stories where it took a while for people to even know what was on the train when the car derailed. What do you do to make sure that you're adequately protected once you're at the scene of something that isn't just somebody's frying pan that got out of hand? Right. So based on, and you said it, uh, you know, at at the very beginning of your question, we have a a general idea initially when we're pulling out of the fire station, not backing out of the fire station, pulling out of the fire station (laughs) and... Um, where we're going. Are we going to an apartment fire? Are we going to a, a factory um, that, you know, obviously there's going to be a number of different chemicals? Are we going to a chlorine leak at a swimming pool? So we have a general idea from the get-go. And in the, in the early to mid-80s, fire departments, if you haven't already figured it out, if no one knows who to call um, for any type of emergency, the fire department is going to respond on literally everything. We go on literally everything um, that doesn't involve like a criminal behavior. And even then we end up on the medical portion of that. If there's a medical crisis during that criminal. Act. Oh, yes. But everything else, you whether you're going to a carbon monoxide detector, you're going to a child that is stuck in a swing set. You're going to a broken leg. You're going to a house fire, a car accident. You name it. We are going. We call ourselves the all hazards department. To the fire department now. That's so a good way of looking at it. We have a general idea. Yes. Yeah, we have a general idea initially where we're going. So in the 80s, we, um, the fire service began um, educating ourselves and responding to what's called hazardous materials accidents, right? Mainly dealing with a, tra- a tractor trailer trucks and, and trains carrying hazmat. So as opposed to a typical apartment fire, house fire, where time is of essence and fires are burning on construction today and the fires are burning much more rapidly, time is of essence on a, on a basic structure fire. If we're going to something that involves, you know, that we know for a fact involves a chemical and you have to, you know, use situational awareness, um, you're going to an overturned trailer truck. In hazmat, it's actually the opposite. We're not in a super big hurry. We're going to slow down, stop. 
we have a number of resources on our fire trucks, fire engines, and there's you know placards that are labeled on the buildings or on the uh, the mode of transportation that we can then look up. Are they reactive to water? You know, what's the best way to uh, you know limit our exposure? How far do we isolate or evacuate the public? So in that sense, um, it's more of a, a very slow, methodical approach. And then obviously we have our saying, we could not wear our bunker gear into, you know, certain chemical fires because it would just, you know, disintegrate. So we have special hazmat suits um, that we wear as well. Okay. I'm going to pause you right there because I think we have some business to transact. And then, is that accurate, Lady B? Mm -hmm. And then I want to ask you what the public can do to support you during this January Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. So stand by. All this is good information. and, And in a moment, you'll tell us what we can do on WCPT. WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. We are joined by Chuck Sullivan. He is the, let me get the president, uh, title right, president of the Associated Firefighters of Illinois. We're talking about January as uh, Firefighter Cancer Awareness Month. And we've just been hearing about all the many hazards that are, are faced, not even all, just some of the many hazards that are faced by firefighters just as they uh, conduct their work day. And I guess what I really want to know now, um, Chuck, is what are we, what are we the public able to do to support you, the firefighters who risk everything every day so that we don't burn up? But, uh, first, I want to just reassure the public that anytime someone calls 911, uh, I can guarantee you with 100% confidence that whether you're in, um, you know, Huntley, Illinois, or Chicago, or Rock Island, Every single firefighter paramedic is going to respond and do the the best possible job that they can. Um, I have have no doubt. I have no doubt about that. So I'm I'm with you 100 percent on that. So. Okay, good. So I, 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 we just want the public to know that, you know, at some point down the line and you talked about, you know, fire station design or bunker gear, those things, you know, cost money. And, um, you know, there are some communities that are strapped for cash, right? Yes. So we just, as a reminder, um, you know, you, you pay tax dollars for services. And I would suggest that, you know, police and fire are up there as, you know, pretty legitimate services that you deserve, right? When you call 911, you are, you know, we believe that you should be able to have somebody there within, you know, three to five minutes to uh, mitigate your emergency. So I guess long term, if and when there are there is a a new standard of bunker gear, that's going to cost some dollars. If a fire station is 100 years old, it's going to cost money to, you know, remodel that or put in a back door so the fire engine can pull through as opposed to back in. So I just want them to be aware of, you know, there are some dollars 
that might be involved here in the future. But. So there, what you're saying, and I love it that you're saying this, because I say this all the time. All these people go, I hate the government. Really? Well, put out your own right. house fire then. So yeah, sure, sure. that's fantastic news. Just drive yourself to the hospital in an emergency then. <laughs> go right ahead. Feel free. So we, as you're absolutely correct in pointing out, we need not to be stingy when these things come up for a vote. When somebody says we need to vote in legislation that pays for these services, We need to say yes. Thank you, Chuck Sullivan. I really appreciate your time on WCPT, and you've done a lot to make us more aware of what you go through, and we do want to support you. We are Live Local and Progressive WCPT. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT820. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Five minutes after three o'clock, I am Tori Ryder. That's Tori with you. Ryder like the truck. I am at the mic. Lady B is at the controls. Thanks to Julia Shu for making it all happen behind the scenes. Um, we spoke yesterday about the announcement of a new head for Illinois' Department of Children and Family Services. And I won't repeat my experiences. They weren't in Illinois, but they were very sad and scary. And I know that people in Illinois have been really at a loss as to what we can do better. The prior head of the department did not seem to be, I'm going to put this as delicately as I can, up to the job. So we have somebody new. Uh, Heidi Miller is her name. And I wondered if it would be possible to speak with someone who really is on the, the side of things where the actual need shows up. And thanks to Julia, you get to meet somebody I'm excited to meet as well. His name is Charles Golbert. He is the Cook County Public Guardian. And so, uh, well, we'll ask, we'll ask, um, is it Mr. or Doctor? Welcome to WCPT. Good to have you with us. Hi. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, do you prefer an honorific or should I just call you Charles? You can just call me Charles. Thank you. Okay. So here you are. You have a really, really, I guess, thankless job doesn't even begin to describe it. Um, Where do you interact with the kids in the system that DCFS is supposed to be looking out for? And what's above you? What's below you? What needs to happen? And how are you approaching the arrival of your new uh, state leader? So our office has appointed lawyers for children who have uh, child abuse and neglect cases in juvenile court in Cook County. So that's Chicago and all the suburbs. Um, basically, when DCFS brings a child abuse case to court, the first order that the court has to enter is an order appointing a lawyer for the child. And in Cook County, that's our office. Uh, and we represent the children from the day the case comes in. They might be newborn infants all the way until either the child is adopted or is successfully returned home or um, emancipates it age 21. So that's our involvement. The majority of the children we represent in court uh, have DCFS as a guardian. And for some of the kids, DCFS 
um, ends up being a, a good guardian. They're in good foster homes. They're in stable situations. They're getting what they need. For a lot of the children we represent in juvenile court, though, DCFS is not doing what it needs to be doing um, for the children. And I can get into all kinds of examples of what I mean by that. Please but that's, do. That's yes. I'm going to ask you, what are some of the things that typically you see children need and DCFS is not able, can't afford, doesn't have the person power uh, to provide? Oh, right now, the biggest issue is placements. DCFS really has a dearth of the array of placements that kids need. And the results that we see are really sad. So um, every year, uh, dozens of DCFS's children end up sleeping on a hard, cold floor in an office instead of in a warm, comfortable bed in a loving, appropriate placement because DCFS has nowhere to place them. And those, frankly, are the lucky kids. We have kids who end up in jail basically DCFS using a jail as a placement for a child for weeks and weeks or for months um, or months after the, the, the judge has ordered that the child be released to the custody of their guardian. If their guardian is a parent, the parent comes and picks the kid up from jail. If the guardian is DCFS and they don't have a placement, DCFS keeps that kid in jail for weeks or for months because of no placement. This happens to kids who get stuck in locked psychiatric hospitals. Same situation. The doctors say this child's ready to be released from the psychiatric hospital, which, by the way, is locked. You're indoors all day. It's horrible. No schooling, no activities, no nothing. You're watching kids going through acute psychiatric episodes all day long. And if DCFS doesn't have a placement for you, you're going to languish there for weeks um, and for months. DCFS places kids last year it was um, 300 I'm sorry last year it was 95 children to far away out of state placements as far as away as, as Arkansas Wyoming um, Tennessee and what because would be they their have reason that would be they, is their family there for them or they're going to a facility there because they're going to a facility there. If, if if they were going because they had loving grandparents there that are an appropriate placement for them, I, I wouldn't be complaining about it. That would be terrific. They're going there because to a facility because DSPS has nowhere here in Illinois for the children, and they're being moved away from whatever family connections they have. And these placements are difficult to monitor and you know the quality of care, and they're really expensive. And so that's just one issue, lack, lack of quality placements. Another issue is DCFS's vacancy rate for investigators. Um, the last data that came out, it was around 20%. So it's investigators. They're the people who go out in, all over and investigate reports that the child's being abused. Their caseloads are far exceeding national norms and also a federal court order. So they're not able to do investigations that are timely, that are complete. Um, they're not. They're not able to do a buddy system if they with two investigators going. If one investigator feels endangered, and that's part of why we've seen so many children deaths in cases that DCFS has been investigating, including okay. just last. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, go uh, ahead. No, go. I just finish that thought, and then I will ask you about the new appointee. So please, including which case. Yeah, I was going to say just last month, um, a, a former DSPS child welfare uh, um, worker was convicted criminally for felony child endangerments 
for um, very poor social work that resulted in the death of a child named A.J. Friend. That's really unheard of nationally. That's just unheard of nationally. And this worker, on the one hand, didn't do his job, but on the other hand, was laboring in an inept bureaucracy with caseload that far exceeded national norms. And so, so, so those are just a handful of the challenges I would right Im- now. imagine that sort of feeds on itself. If you want to do good work and you know it's going to be impossible for you to do good work as a social worker, why would you take a job in a department where you're just set up to fail the kid, fail your own expectations of yourself? So now let's bring it to the new appointment uh, just appointed um, by the governor, I assume, um, uh, Heidi Mueller, I believe her name is, and she is going yes. to run the department. What, what what do you think she needs to do first? And does she have the capacity, the financial backing of the state? Is she set up for failure too, or can she make some progress? I hope not. I hope she's going to be able to make a lot of progress. So first of all, I'm, I'm optimistic about this appointment. It's an appointment by Governor Pritzker. And uh, she brings um, to the task a wealth of child welfare experience. She's definitely a a recognized expert in child welfare. I do not know her myself. I've never had occasion to work with her, but I know that she has an excellent reputation. She's known as being um, reform-minded and uh, being an excellent manager, and and she's supervised large bureaucracies before in the area of child welfare. So I want to be very um, cautiously optimistic um, about her her appointment. In terms of resources, DCFS actually does, for the first time in many years, in my opinion, have the resources that it needs. In the last five years, DCFS's budget has doubled from a little over $1 billion to now it has $2 billion, that's billion with a B, annual um, billion-dollar budget. Um, annually, and that's doubled in the last three or four years. So for the first time, DCFS cannot say, oh, we don't have the money, we don't have the resources. For the first time, they do have the resources. The challenge for the new director is taking these newfound resources and actually translating that into improved outcomes for children, which is what we have not seen yet. And what would you regard, I'm I'm guessing one of your first uh, thoughts for improved outcome would be intervention with the family, temporary placement for the kid, and then a return of kid to a a healthier family setting. But that may not be possible. Um, So what, from where you sit as the person who represents the child, what's ideal? So there, there are a lot of nationally recognized outcome indicators for child welfare agencies like DCFS. One is the percentage of children who achieve permanence within 12 months. Permanence is either uh, adoption, guardianship, or successful return home. Um, DCFS is doing way below national norms. Another outcome indicator is achieving permanency within 24 months. Another outcome is incidence of harm to children within a a period of time per year. Um, DCFS is below the national norm in all of these outcome indicators. These are nationally recognized outcome indicators and other child welfare agencies all over the country with similar challenges to DCFS are doing better. So I'd like to see DCFS 
assertively be above average nationally in terms of these measures of house taking care of children. Also, we should have zero tolerance for kids in these wholly inappropriate placements like the floor of an office, like yeah, a jail. That's just horrifying. Zero. Hospitals. Yeah, yeah it's, I, I uh, heard a, an investigative piece on kids who are being kept in these psychiatric facilities just because there's nowhere else to play the, place them. It just sounds horrible. So I'm going to ask you more about that in just a moment. But you did mention that the funding has doubled. I keep hearing stories that due to uh, addiction uh, sicknesses, addiction-related uh, problems, a lot of, or I guess we're now supposed to say substance abuse disorder, a lot of, of young people are, are um, coming into the system more than ever before. So is this increase in funding commensurate with the influx of kids or is it outpacing it so that we really do have more to work with? Yeah, it's far outpacing it. So the number of children, so I can give you the numbers for Cook County. In mm-hmm. Cook County, right before COVID-19, we had about 6,000 children and now we have about 6,900 children. Oh. So an increase of about 900, what is that, uh, quick math, like 17% or something uh, like that increase? Well, 600 times, uh, so it's uh, 10, 12%, I think is about right. Um, 12%. So Wow, I'm <laughs> impressed. That was good. <laughs> uh, well, if you're up by 900 on 6,000, that's an easy one. Uh, okay. Maybe 15%. Yeah. Because 600, let's not waste the talk show with my lousy, lousy math, <laughs> uh, lousy arithmetic. As, as a friend of mine who is a very sophisticated math professor once said, you're asking for arithmetic, not mathematics. <laughs> so let, let's go to, um, let, let's talk some more about what specifically first, second, and third would be your priorities for Heidi Mueller. And then since we have you on the phone, I do want to ask you, uh, if anyone is is motivated to become a foster parent, like what what goes into that? Because we've heard a lot about you have to be the same race as the kid or the kids are already very troubled and some are dangerous. I mean, a lot of things that we hear about um, the kids. And, and so maybe you're in a position to speak to some of that, too. So stand by. You'll hear more from Charles Gobert in just a moment. He is Cook County Public Guardian, and he will be speaking with us in uh, just a few minutes. Some more on WCPT. Tom Hartman. You know, as, as crazed as these guys are on the Supreme Court, I think they have learned a lesson from the Dobbs decision, which is that, you know, you can go pretty far. But there is a point that when you exceed that point, it blows up in your face. And they're starting to get a little concerned about that. The Tom Hartman Radio Program, weekdays 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Hey, Google, play WCPT. Streaming Chicago's progressive talk from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. It was 15%, by the way. 15%. I was wrong. Charles Goldberg. <laughs> I don't want to be here when I have to do numbers. Um, Sorry. It's all right. Uh, it's good that you're here. It's good that you do what you do. Charles Gobert is the Cook County Public Guardian. That means when a kid comes into the court system, as he has just explained, these are the folks who, who represent the kid and their best interests. And we have a new head 
child welfare juvenile justice expert Heidi Mueller, who was just named yesterday as the head of DCFS, Department of Children and Family Services, which has, as we have just established, been failing the children miserably. Right, right. So yep. what would be the first? So so you've mentioned several areas where help is needed. Get them off of the floors of offices, get them out of jails and hospitals. And and so what can the state do to encourage placements of these kids in settings where they will be safe, uh, ideally cared about, uh, looked after, but at, at the very minimum where they have some standard of living that is appropriate. How old are most of them, for starters? They range from newborn infants all the way up to teenagers up to the age of 21. But most of them? How old are most of them? Uh, When they come in, they're usually um, much younger, ranging from infants to um, to 8 or 10 when they first come in, yeah. And then the ones that are sleeping on floors, they're like 8, 10 years old, sleeping on an office floor? Yeah, all ages. It happens for two reasons. One, a brand new case comes in and DSPES has nowhere to place the kids, and that's where they end up. The second time it happens is if a placement disrupts and DSPES has nowhere to place the child. They can end up in offices or far away or what are supposed to be short-term emergency shelters for months because DSPES doesn't have anywhere for them. We've all been handed um, a, a lot of stereotypes about kids in the foster care system. And I I have friends who have had uh, adopted from foster and have been foster parents. And it's definitely, you know, it's the ads, I think, are very misleading. I just want a home. The kids come into this situation with a lot of baggage. And if you're going to be a foster parent, you need more than than a bed and a willing heart, don't you? You need some support. And does DCFS provide that, assuming that that's accurate? Yeah, so, well, a few things. With foster parents, uh, foster parents are the whole backbone of the system. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for all the foster families, uh, the mess we're in would be so much, even so much greater. I mean, what, what, we need lawyers, we need judges, we need social workers, but at the end of the day, the whole backbone of the whole system is, is, uh, loving foster parents and families and adoptive, uh, families. So that, that's first of all. Second of all, some of the kids do have special needs and they do need supports. Um, sometimes DSPS does a better job of providing the supports than other times. I, I've seen kids in wonderful, loving foster homes who have been adopted that got the supports that they needed from DSFS and, and others where they just didn't. There are many variables ranging from, so a lot of the operations are privatized. Some of these private, about 80% of foster care is privatized. Uh, Some of the private agencies are a lot better than other private agencies. Within any agency, some of the workers are a lot better than the other workers. Um, Some types of special needs, we have better services in different parts of the state than others. So there there are a lot of variables. Um, But yeah, foster foster and adoptive families are the key. They really are. Um, And a lot of the kids do need supports. Um, And part of our office's job is if a child is not getting what they need for the foster parent to be able to pick up the phone and call us, and there's a specific lawyer from our office who's assigned 
to every kid and talk to that lawyer and say, hey, Johnny needs a new wheelchair. Johnny's outgrown the wheelchair, and I'm getting the runaround from the de-stress bureaucracy. Can you help us? And we're very often able to step in uh, and help. And it might be a phone call. It might be a motion in court. Um, but our job is to help that that family get the wheelchair that that kid needs. I just got this question came in on a chat. Um, would you please ask if adoptive parents must be of a certain age and no older? Um, my understand, I believe there's no age limitation as of now for adoptive parents. So you wouldn't have to worry if you were in your 60s, for example, and you wanted to foster and then adopt that they would say no because you're going to be dead by the time the kid's in university or something like that. Well, they're, they're supposed, these trusts are supposed to look at a whole gamut of things and make a decision in the child's best interest. But the reality is, is these trusts just doesn't have the homes that it needs. Um, and especially if your family, if your kin, if, if you're an aunt or a grandparent, it's for sure not going to be a problem if you're an appropriate home. What about this push, I mean, which had a lot of reasoning behind it, for only placing kids in the same culture, the same race, the same language backgrounds? That, that was a big stumbling block, I seem to recall, a while ago. Is that still the law? Is that DCFS policy? How does that play out in real life? So, again, there are a lot of variables DCFS is supposed to look at. At the end of the day, it's supposed to be what's best for the child. DCFS is supposed to figure out what's best for the child. And placing the child in a culturally similar uh, um, um, background placement is is important. Um, and keeping the child in the community that the child came from, where there are hopefully supports and family members and, and friends and familiarity is also important. Um, but, of course, it's also important to have the child placed in a loving, appropriate home, not in the floor of an office. Um, and so DCFS is supposed to take all of these things, await them appropriately, and make the placement decision that is in the child's best interest. In my opinion, the vast majority of kids are sleeping on the floors of offices or locked up in jails or, or, or psych hospitals. It's not because of a well-meaning but misguided insistence that they um, be with the same race or or um, not move too far from the community. Um, if that was true, we wouldn't have all of these children in these far away out-of-state placements in Florida and in Tennessee and in Wyoming. Um, in my view, when, when we see kids in, on office floors, it's just because DSPIS doesn't have enough placements for these kids. Okay, so February 2nd, Heidi Mueller opens up her office door and announces, if you could wave a magic wand with the minutes we have remaining, what's the first thing she should do? Um, so one is transparency. I, I think I'm, I'm a firm believer that's an absolute per se prerequisite to meaningful reform. It what does that look like? What, what, what is transparency in this context? So that means when a kid dies and you as a journalist or the Chicago Tribune or a child advocacy group or a, a, a policy um, um, research center calls DSFS and asks, hey, what the heck happened? Open your files. Tell us what happened and what went wrong so that we can study it and make recommendations so it doesn't happen again. DSFS 
does so, even if it's going to be embarrassing to them. Right now, DCFS does the exact opposite. Actually, the irony is DCFS always says, oh, oh, I'd love to give you the journalist, uh, 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 let you know what happened and let you report on it, but it's confidential, confidentiality. We have to respect confidentiality. But the kid's dead. There's no longer any confidentiality to protect. The confidentiality rules are intended to protect vulnerable children, not inept bureaucrats. So that's what it looks like. That's thing one. I'm surprised you would say that first, but I guess you're an attorney. You would have to say that first. But for the kids, because as you pointed out, that kid is already, um, that will play itself out in courts. But for the kids, what's the first thing she should do to make the kids' lives better on February 2nd? So she needs to, with a sense of immediacy and urgency, work on expanding placement capacity for kids and also expanding community-based services for children and families. And that has to happen post-haste. Okay. I think we're going to leave it there because that sounds like a roadmap. And if we are in a community where we know there are at-risk kids, and I know there are a lot of at-risk kids in my community. I live in Uptown. And I see them, and uh, some of them I have interesting conversations with at the at the little free library as I help them pick out little free library books, and they're out way too late, and they have way too little clothing on. Um, then I, I I think that you've given us a pretty good idea of of how we can proceed. Is there a website with the few moments you have remaining where if somebody wants to become a foster provider or foster care provider, where where should they look first? Yeah, the DCFS website has all that information, and I don't have the site handy, but Google Illinois DCFS, and it'll pop right up. That should do it. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and and more to the point, I appreciate the work you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Charles Goldbert. He's the Cook County Public Guardian. You just heard what's uh, his priority, and perhaps yours, too, for the new head of DCFS. It's 3.30. I'm Tori Ryder for Joan Esposito. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Suri Ryder. Ah, sweet! Why, thank you. Yes, I am. Uh, Tory Ryder in for Joan, who returns on Monday. Phone number here, 773-763-WCPT. That also works for texting, 773-763-9278. And as you've noticed, if you're at work or please don't text while you drive. I do it, but don't you do it, okay? Don't, don't do it. I try not to do it. I, I'm getting better at not doing it. I don't do it. Right. I don't do it. I never, ever. I'm perfect. Um, yeah, you can text me, and often your texts will show up here um, post-haste. Let's, uh, let's figure out what is going on with COVID. We've talked about the return to masking. We've talked about the resurgence of COVID, but it's getting very confusing because a lot of us don't even know what we're talking about anymore. And that is, as they would say in Kansas, where I grew up, on account of, on account of, the name keeps changing. So how does that happen? I would like to introduce you to Dr. Ryan Gregory. He is an evolutionary biologist at Canada's University of, I'm going to make a stab at this because I'm not <laughs> Canadian, Guelph. Is that right? Correct. 
That's right. I had some coaching, by the way. My kid just finished school up in Canada, so he he coached me last night. I'm like, how? How do I? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you didn't want to go to Guelph because I would have never known how to say where you were. So, yeah, he picked an easier to, to say school. So You got it. Yes. This is a little hot. I'm just going to do a little technical thing. It's a little hot in my headphones. Thank you, Lady B. So why is the name of COVID evolving almost as fast, well, as fast, along with the virus? What what are we looking at now, and how did we get here? Uh, well, you're probably hearing primarily about a new, uh, a newer variant. JN something or other. JN1. Yeah. That's right, JN1. Okay. Yes. Um, so those, that letter number is the formal naming system that's been in place throughout the pandemic. And it is used to give a label, essentially a, a, like, like a scientific Latin name for a species, to each of the new variants that is found to be different enough to warrant that. So JN1 is, uh, is a derivative of a variant that is uh, officially called BA286. And what's particularly interesting about it and important about it is that that BA-286 probably evolved within a single person who was infected for uh, about a year. And it continued to undergo mutation and undergo change within that individual person and then subsequently re-entered the, the rest of the population. Uh, JN1 is wait, also... Wait, hold, hold up right there because I would like to express a moment of sympathy for this person who yes. was incubating and an evolving virus for a solid year. Now, it is, it is my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, that viruses often just don't completely go away. They go quiescent. Your body uh, fights them off to a level where it can function. And then theoretically, it fights them off some more. But the, typically, you do have a resident population that, that just doesn't make you sick in many cases. Is that accurate? That's certainly accurate. And there's common ones that take up residence in nerves or elsewhere in the herpes, body. Herpes, that's one of herpes them. Herpes is an example yeah. that mm-hmm. can be reactivated or, or uh, begin to become active when you're under stress, for example. So that's certainly true. In this case, it's more likely that the virus was, was much more active that whole time because what's going on is it's replicating. And, you know, these things just make mistakes as they're making copies. And that's what mutations are. And then some of them lead to the virus being more successful at at making more copies within the body. Um, It's not clear exactly how uncommon those persistent infections are. One hypothesis about long COVID, for example, is that it's really a matter of persistent infection. Uh, But we're seeing these examples in the wastewater, too, where it looks like someone has been infected and continuing to shed uh, virus for, for months, if not a year or more. So that's probably where this one came from. It's also probably where we got the original Omicron in late uh, 2021 and was through a a long-term infection that then re-entered the population. So So that's where that's, that's probably where the the, the JN1, uh, its grandparent variant came from. How different does a generation of virus have to be before it merits a new name? 
So this is where we get into uh, a bit of a debate about how things should be named. So in terms of a, a formal designation, that letter-number combination, or what some people kind of refer to as the alphabet soup, uh, it doesn't have to be very different at all. So JN1 is actually BA286.1.1, so it's two generations later. It only differs in one spike protein mutation, one one change in the protein that's involved on the outside of the virus to, for attaching to our cells. There's only one change between it and the original BA286. Uh, those designations get given out quite freely. There are technical uh, labels that allow, mostly allow researchers to, to distinguish between uh, m moderately different variants, enough to kind of warrant being seen as something different. Uh, in terms of the names, the, the formal nicknames, the Greek letters that we've gotten used to, the criteria for that has changed over time. So in, as it turns out, um, the the World Health Organization assigned those Greek letters uh, over a period of about 180 days between May and November of 2021 and has not given any new ones in the last two years. So you guys are and, just kind of stuck with the same old Greek lettering, like some kind of frat house with the letters falling yeah, off. Yeah, so, so it depends who you mean. because the, so, so the World Health Organization has not uh, assigned a new Greek letter since Omicron. And that was in uh, November of 2021. So that's two years ago. And there are now those letter number combinations I mentioned that are given out much more easily. There's more than 2,000 of those that all fall under Omicron now. So I can appreciate that uh, the specificity of the letter number designation is useful for researchers who are working with this virus in laboratories. But what is, is this helping the public to hear? Okay, now you're looking at Jan one. Okay, now you're looking at something else. Is it helpful or confusing to the public? Because it sounds to me that the only things the public need to be really worried about are the responsiveness to the virus of the virus to whatever antiviral we can prescribe and the communicability of the or contagiousness or however you want to uh, describe that of of the virus and and the third thing would be how sick you get with a vaccine without a vaccine with the antiviral those three factors would seem just as a layperson sitting here to be all that really mattered and it doesn't really matter what you call it. Is that an accurate assessment or am I missing I, something here? No, I don't, I don't think you're wrong. I think in terms of the technical names, uh, it's not that useful for public uh, communication. And in fact, there were two main reasons why the World Health Organization instituted that Greek letter system in 2021. One of them was the alphabet soup was already getting confusing. It was already getting difficult to sort of communicate that this thing is different from this other thing and this is what we're trying to convey about it. Uh, the other was that people were using place names. So they were referring to the UK variant or the South African variant or these sorts of things that, that were problematic for, for our former president. President around here, we don't like to say his name, calling it the, the China virus, which was really an yes, ugly, exactly. ugly so, thing to do. Yes, yes. So trying to avoid the stigma that comes from that, or you know, including uh, sometimes practical concerns like travel bans being being imposed and things like that. Uh, sometimes when you find a virus or a variant somewhere, it's not because that's where it originated or where it's only found right now. It's because that 
country has good surveillance and is open about what they find. And that seems to have been what happened with the first Omicron in South Africa when, you know, it was first reported there. Uh, and then there were travel bans being imposed on African countries and so on. So in any case, th- that kind of problem has been around for a while. So that's why the Greek letter system was put in place, to, to prevent those place names and to clean up uh, the, the communication. Now, that was back... You know, pre-Omicron, more than 2,000 new uh, letter-number combinations have been allocated in the time since the last Greek letter was was given. So that's that's become a concern. The, the analogy I, I've used to kind of explain what the naming issue is is if you imagine. Let's say you and I are walking in a park, and you say, you know, you hear this noise rustling in the in the bushes, and you say, "What is that?" And I say, "Oh, it's a mammal." That's not very helpful to know whether you should run or it's going to be something cute or what, right? Well, it's, Likewise, it's helpful if your only fear is snakes, but yes, go on. Well, sure. If yeah. you're afraid of snakes, then, then fair good. enough. Yeah, right? you had so, to give me that analogy, didn't I'll you? I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay. If you're not worried at all about mammals, uh, then fair enough. Okay. Well, likewise, though, if I had said it's a reptile, um, that might not have been enough information. No, it's not. So no. that's what the Greek letter system is, is sort of doing now. So everything that's been circulating for almost two years is basically Omicron. So if you say it's Omicron, it's not conveying any real information at this point. The other option, though, is the technical name. So if if we're walking and you say, what is that making that noise? And I say, "Uh, Procyon Loader. You're also maybe not going to find that very useful. If I'm with a bunch of zoologists, they'll say, oh, we know what that is. But if I said it's a raccoon, you would know immediately what I meant. And the the piece that, that is missing... Uh, in the communication right now is that equivalent to the word raccoon, which is a common name. We call that a common name. Rather than the technical name or the larger group, there's a common name. So that's where the the idea of using nicknames has sort of come up among uh, volunteer variant trackers who who are finding and cataloging and discussing these variants. We started using nicknames um, initially based on Greek mythological creatures to go along with the Greek uh, letter system, and that's where you heard you know um, different different names uh, up until Kraken, which is which Nordic, I, which is Nordic, which is Nordic. Yes. Um, we, we 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 were pretty clear. Uh, we said, look, this one's not Greek, although most people probably associate it with. Clash of the Titans. You yeah, know. All I know is that the minute Sydney Powell had opened up her <laughs> mouth, I just, uh, yeah. Okay, so, so okay, you want, you want two things then, sort of like when people, to use your analogy, when people might say for conversation, uh, this is a raccoon, and then give its genus and species. What are you expecting the general public to know? And is it important if someone comes in with a bad cough and a high fever and trouble breathing, um, what should the doctor be communicating to a patient? What should a patient be communicating to a doctor so that people understand what the each person understands what the other person needs for tracking and for health? Yeah, so I think there's a pretty wide range. I mean, there's not one the public, right? So I think there's a pretty wide range in amount of information that people want. In some cases, it's purely practical, like what you're describing. And so I usually point out things like uh, well-fitting N95 masks and 
ventilation and air filtration and avoiding uh, large crowds, those work on any variant. It, the, no variant has evolved the capacity to avoid those things that are based on physics. So if you're looking for what? What? practical... Physics still applies? How? Okay. Physics applies. Good. And I, you, you know what? I'm a biologist and I'm loath to say that physics trumps biology in any context, but in this case it does. Uh, so those will all, those always work. Those okay. always work against any variant. Okay. The vaccines, though, it matters. So, for example, the vaccines have been updated twice. Uh, the first time was to some of the earlier Omicron lineages and most recently to XBB15, or what we nicknamed Kraken. Uh, so now the question is, when something new comes along, uh, immediately you'll have questions about, will the vaccines still work? against this new one are the symptoms different which is difficult to to sort out in many cases but with jn1 for example uh because it was showing up in such high amounts in wastewater which is one of the sort of few major surveillance methods we have left yes uh people started asking like is this an artifact you know of people just shedding a lot more in the wastewater in other words is it taking up residence in people's uh, digestive tracts rather than hanging out in their lungs. Ah. So there was a lot of discussion about whether that might be part of it. It looks like that's not the case. It is actually a lot of COVID out there. But it does raise the potential alarm about, you know, let's keep an eye on whether there are a lot more gastrointestinal symptoms being reported, for example. And at various other times, you know, people have had uh, pink eye was reported as one of the symptoms. So the symptoms do shift. You may recall uh, early on, it was loss of smell was the big thing. Loss of smell and taste, which we don't hear so much about anymore. So symptoms can shift. Um, I think more than anything, though, the the reason to kind of pay attention to what's happening with variants, and I don't mean the 2,000 Omicrons, I mean the you know small handful that people point out are of, of particular note, the ones that would warrant a, uh, a nickname or a Greek letter if they were doing that still, um, are... are is as an early warning for, uh, you know, this new variant is arriving, it is taking off in these parts of the world. It's it resistant like to... It can, well, and it can evade immunity. So even if you've had an infection in the last, you know, six months or you've been vaccinated with the old uh, original vaccine or so on, you may be susceptible to this. And it allows us to watch, uh, you know, and make some predictions about whether we're likely to see significant increases. Um, the other thing that I think, Baron, in mind too is that the acute severity isn't really the the main thing in many ways anymore it hasn't sort of hasn't been for about a year and a half initially yes absolutely i think now uh with the amount of immunity that does exist it it, it wanes and it's partial and uh you know, variants evolved to to get around it, but uh, I think mostly we're more concerned at this point with the longer term impacts. Um, You're talking about long COVID or long just COVID more people going down with short term COVID. You know what? Hold that thought because yep. I want I want to, I want you to answer that question in a moment, and so stand by. You are listening to Dr. Ryan Gregory. He's an evolutionary biologist at Canada. Canada's University of Guelph talking about naming the newer strains of uh, COVID virus and what the names mean and what it means for us if you get a new one or you get something this go round, which seems to be coming, be becoming more and more likely. It's the Joan Esposito show just about 348 on WCPT live local and progressive. WCPT 820 Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. 
Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Suri Ryder. I am both of those things, radio personality and author. And thanks for the person, thanks to the person who just texted and said they ordered the book. Gosh, that's nice. I wish I could come and sign it personally for you at your house. But there will be a time. The time right now is to continue our conversation with Ryan Gregory. Uh, Dr. Gregory is an evolutionary biologist at Canada's University of Guelph. We're talking about the evolution of the COVID virus. That's what most of us still call it. And um, you were just going to talk about the new vaccines and the evolution of the virus and say a little more about that. And then I want to ask you about testing. Sure. Well, I think, and I think we were talking about long COVID as well. Um, so in terms of, uh, I I guess as part of all of this, maybe it's worthwhile pointing out this idea just somehow become quite common. Um, and is often repeated by experts as well, not evolutionary biologists, but other experts is that a virus will sort of automatically evolve to become more benign, uh, less harmful for the host and so on. And that's, that's, that's really a myth. So one of the things, that can happen is uh, that a virus can become uh, more likely to be transmitted asymptomatically or have less in the way of acute effects that would uh, basically slow down it, you know, transmission to new hosts by incapacitating someone who's sick, but it can have longer term effects or it can hang out in the body longer. And those kinds of things are not actually uh, prevented by this idea of, of how the virus will evolve. So, so the idea of, of um, virus becoming benign and not causing longer-term effects is something that we should be very wary about when we hear it. And in particular, it's worth noting that, you know, something like HIV or many other viruses that took years to figure out what they did longer term, uh, something like COVID, we can't know yet what it will do after 10 years of being infected, especially repeatedly, because it's only been around for four years. So let me just make sure I understand. So how the virus evolves is not to become less transmissible or more transmissible or more acutely symptomatic. It it I'm I'm missing something here. It evolves well, in such a way that the symptoms are less acute. Is that what you're saying? It could be. The, the, there's an assumption that often gets sort of articulated that a virus will automatically become like a common cold or less damaging to the host. Well, if viruses not. were smart and could, you know, could talk yeah, to each other across time and space and could <laughs> get on they're not. get on their smartphones the and go, hey, Fred, I figured this out. If we don't kill Susie Q, she'll be around as our host for the next 20 years. But they don't they don't do that. No, but, that's you've nailed exactly what the problem is with that, which is a virus is a little tiny piece, in this case of RNA, that makes copies and either gets into a new host or it doesn't. And, and so it doesn't have foresight or planning or strategies. It's not outsmarting us. It's not thinking ahead. So. Well, but but on the other hand, if it bumps you off almost instantaneously, it doesn't have an opportunity to evolve. At least not, you know, maybe underground, but but not in a way that could be communicated to somebody else. That's right. And so, so that's why it matters quite a bit how many available hosts there are. <sighs> and so if you've got access to a lot of hosts, in other words, people living in high density indoors with huge population sizes and moving around the world. That's which we do. Which, which, which we, we do. do. Yes. Which we do. And we never have before. So that's another sort of thing that gets, you know, 
said as well, look at the flu pandemic in 1918. It sort of you know, petered out. Well, one effort was made to fight that one. But also, we've never actually had a situation where we had 8 billion hosts with a virus that is not seasonal that can infect year-round and repeatedly infect people with this degree of global travel. That, that actually has never happened in the history of human, uh, uh, of human history. So, so these are different circumstances, and it does mean that there's less pressure on, on uh, virus uh, evolution to make it benign. But even if it did, there isn't pressure against it doing things to you after you've already passed it on to someone else. I That's see. That's the sort of concern. Okay. So it can, it can it, move on to the next person in your family and keep metamorphosing in and your body. And do something to you body. five years later. Ah, okay. That, that, so we should not rule that out. That's uh, cheery That's a nice, yeah. nice no, thing. Not, it, but let's go back to the idea that you know we have measures that can stop it no matter what the variant is. Well, the as we long as we better. can keep improving our antivirals, yeah, but as we've all seen with antibiotics, sometimes we hit a bit of a brick wall in that department. I'm looking at you, people who took tetracycline for your zits. <laughs> all right, let's, let's move with the few minutes that we have available. I may have to confess in a minute. My father was a virologist, so I, mm-hmm. uh, and he ripped all kinds of things out of our house years before other people had to stop using them or taking them. Um, right. Yeah, I would come home one day and my, what, what happened to my anti-zit cream? Your father <laughs> threw it all out. What happened to mom's anti-wrinkle cream? Your father threw it all out. Um, so the testing, let's talk about the at-home tests. The first question I have is, why are all these tests um, so quick to expire? What, what's in there that can't live an extra month or two? Uh, well, I, I think the expiry dates, there have been some suggestions that they it's still worth potentially using even beyond that. So uh, I, that's not my area of expertise, but I, my understanding is it's more like the best before date on certain ah, products that you might buy. So okay. it's not that it suddenly stops working. Um, I would be more wary of a... A negative. So, generally speaking, the concern with any of those tests is is much more to do with false negatives than false positives. If you get a positive, you're probably positive. Yes. If you get a negative, uh, it could mean you didn't do the test properly. It could mean that you. So, one thing that has been updated is is the recommendation on where you swab, for example, for the rapid antigen test. So, swabbing the throat and the cheeks and then the nose, as well as instead of just doing the nose as the instruction sheets usually say. Ah. Um, it's also been indicated, you know, you should retest. So if you test negative within a day or two, test again. Yes, I think most um, of us have gotten that message. I don't yes, think most so, of us are using four swabs per test and just sticking it everywhere. I don't, I don't know anybody yeah, who's doing yeah, that. Yeah, so so they they work. I mean, they're they've um, they're not a sure thing. So a negative does not necessarily mean you're not carrying it. A positive almost certainly means you are though so it's they're still useful tools in other words and it can be used to direct behavior so if you if you uh, test positive you know avoid 
to the, to the extent possible. And if you uh, test uh, negative and, and you still feel horrible, maybe just send somebody over to the drugstore for a, a, another test that's newer is what you're saying. Yes. And, and you know, so, well, another test that's newer or re, redo, uh, if you have some others from that from that box, you could redo it in a day or two. That seems to be uh, something that, that... Good, because happen. I hate throwing stuff out. I just, <laughs> I hate it. And by the way, I just, just I'm just going to complain for a second. And, and you can just hang up on me if you don't want to listen to this, but how come it is? How come it is that you get the same number of holes in every shower curtain that you buy anywhere in the world and they can't standardize the damn COVID test so that one, it's like the COVID test hokey pokey. This one you put in the thing and swab around and this one it's the liquid. You Is there any agency anywhere that says, no, it all has to work the same way so that we can actually use it? Uh, so it's an actually a really interesting uh, comment because I think we most of us kind of got used to the idea of how they work. But you're right; you're still finding different vials, different combinations of steps that you need to do. Uh, that's largely because there's just uh, quite a number of different manufacturers, and what probably gets evaluated more than anything is just: are, do they work? Yeah. Are, are they effective and accurate? How you package it and how you uh, distribute the the elements within it. Right? There's the there's the buffer and there's the Holy swab. Smokes. Yeah, it was All just so much stuff. easier with yeah. the pregnancy test. You just peed on it. That was it. I, <laughs> well, it would I, be nice, wouldn't it, if wouldn't that were if, in some ways? Yes, yeah. it would. It's Less been, invasive. It's been delightful. To, if you would feel that way, yes. Yes, it would. Thank you so much for making time to talk with us. I think You're we, very I, I know more than I did when I started, which is kind of half the fun of doing it. So thank you, Dr. Gregory. And uh, perhaps we'll speak again. 359 WCPT, Joan Esposito Show, Tory Writer in for Joan. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. I am here. I am here if you need me. Joan Esposito will be back on Monday. I'm here today and tomorrow. And thank you for being here with me. We have some time just to chat by phone or by text. And I wanted to talk a little bit with you about the Perry, Iowa unfolding. I don't even know how to describe these things anymore. Incident? Tragedy? How do you, how do you describe a 17-year-old, another 17-year-old, shows up at school with, I believe the news report just said, a, a pump-action shotgun? And kills a sixth grader. Weirdly, the uh, the news stories don't seem to be uh, counting the life of the seventeen year old. That would be two deaths. And uh, um, principal wounded and kids wounded. Um, I, w- I want to circle around here because normally. Usually, isn't it weird to be able to say usually in these situations, like they're usual, like there are now so many of them that we can say usually, but usually the conversation is about um, on one side banning high assault, high power assault rifles and uh, handguns that can be, you know, fire semi-automatically. And in this case, what caught my attention, other than the fact that I 
like you, I'm a Midwesterner, and I grew up in Kansas and Chicago. What's interesting to me is that on the other side of this argument, there are usually the people talking about mental health, as if it could be all one thing or all another thing, as if mentally healthy people pick up any kind of weapon, go into a school and slaughter people. As if the only way you could do that would be with a high-powered assault rifle or handgun. If you live in small Midwestern towns, people have guns. They have them. They're usually very responsible with them. People I know who grew up hunting uh, will tell you that they learned gun safety as kids. If you're old enough, older than I for sure, you might remember that the NRA used to be a gun safety organization rather than a let's give children their very own assault rifle organization for Christmas, right, for Christmas. And we've all seen the postcards of the families around the Christmas tree with their high-powered assault rifles that were supposed to supposed to indicate where they stand on everything. From personal liberties to the birth of Jesus, apparently it says it all. Have you around the Christmas tree with your gun? Uh, I'd like to point out that all of these shootings are going to very much be on the question list. I don't need a crystal ball to predict this of the Republican candidates who are approaching the Iowa caucuses right now. And I would like to point out, though, that there is virtually no gun control in Iowa. And even if there were, I'm almost certain that your pump action shotgun, which most people use for perfectly reasonable purposes, like feeding their families or protecting their um, crops or livestock, you know, reasonable purposes, for, for folks who live not in the city of Chicago. But this is where, this is where the mental health argument comes to the fore. Because no kid wakes up in the morning and says, gee, my life is great. I'm looking forward to fabulous things. And now I'm going to walk into my school with a shotgun and have at it. And I, for one, am completely Flummoxed because even though these kinds of weapons have been around and available forever, really, this phenomenon is newer. I still remember the radio station I worked for in San Francisco. I was not on the air at the time. I was in the car when the Columbine shooting happened, and we'd never seen anything really like it. The closest that I could remember us getting here in the Chicago area was when a mentally ill young woman who had finished her education at New Trier in the northern Chicago suburbs took a bunch of kids hostage and killed some. You may recall. And it turned out that her parents had repeatedly intervened when the system, the court system, had tried to impose mental health measures on her, perhaps incarceration on her. I I don't remember all the different instances where she ran up against the law in her mental illness and the parents intervened and said, no, 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 nothing to see here. So... I love to say that as a talk show host, I have all the answers to all of this, but frankly, I am flummoxed. I am flummoxed because how can you know 
when a kid is really going to do something horrific and violent? How can you really know that? Nobody has a crystal ball. And what do you do if you have a kid where you just sort of suspect that something is is drastically wrong? And what if you think that that problem can be handled at home? And what if you think that the problem can be handled with, you know, with prayer and laying on of hands? I mean, there is no, we, we are responsible for ourselves and until they're old and grown our kids. And sometimes even beyond the point where they're older and out of the house, we're still asked to be responsible for our kids. And I wish I had an answer for that one. I just don't. Maybe you have some light you could shed on this. Uh, Maybe you have known some young people who you felt were really a risk and you intervened in some way or other. Thank you to the person who gave me the name of the young woman from the northern suburbs. Yes, Lori Dan, indeed. That's right. That was the Lori Dan shooting. And... She she was again. She where she holed up, by the way, was like right next door to a house where I used to hang out with friends because I I went to high school at Nutrier and uh, it's it's kind of that the last place you'd expect something like that to happen. But I can also tell you that there was plenty going on in the supposedly serene suburbs north of the city that was not as the parents would have liked you to believe it was. Actually, there's there's a bit about this in my book. There were a lot of kids who were just sort of left to their own devices with lots of money and big houses and families who traveled and, you know, just didn't pay attention. Just kind of checked out. And the kids were expected, you know, I'm leaving you the car keys. I'm leaving you a car. Leaving you some money and a credit card and mom and dad will be back from Europe in a week or two. Enjoy. Don't have any raucous parties. Ha 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 ha. And you see it. I mean, you don't have to have a a North Shore size house to, to be in an inattentive parent. But what do you do if you're an attentive parent and something's wrong? How do you know how wrong it is? I will give you an example from, um, my own family, there was a friend of one of my offspring. And in a lot of ways, I understood he was a very appealing person. I hear he was charming. I hear he was sweet. I hear he was talented. I hear he had parents who were responsible people and loved him and cared about him. He was thrown out of the high school they all attended. He was institutionalized for a while to get mental health care. He was trouble as far as I was concerned. He was troubled and he was trouble. And because I am not his mother and because my spouse is not his father uh, and because my kid was hanging around with him and I thought he was a bad, just a bad idea. I thought he could be Lori Dan in the making. I found myself saying something you might have had to say to your kids or your parents might have said to you. It's it's weird when you open up your mouth and you hear yourself saying something that's almost a cliche. You're not going to see X anymore. If I find that you have been seeing X, there will be hell to pay. If X is in my house, 
and I find out about it while X is there, I will have X arrested and removed from my, I will, I will do any extreme thing that I have to do to keep X away from you. And X has his own parents and X's parents can worry about X. He's their problem, not my problem. You're my problem. X is history. I've only really ever had to do that once with person X. But there are these kids. You as if you're a parent, you know that there are kids where you just think this this is not this is not good for my kid. Or maybe you are the parent of X. Then what do you do? What do you do? This shooting in Iowa, it just it makes you feel for for the whole family. I mean, there are families where you just don't, when you find, the more you find out, the more you hate the parents and feel bad for the kid, or at least can't condemn the kid. I'm thinking of the um, the Connecticut shooting, where the mother actually bought her clearly mentally disturbed kid, clearly not functional kid, an assault weapon automatic weapon and one of the first people he killed was her and then he went off to the what is the name of the school in Connecticut where the other was just a slaughter I cannot think of it the one that they went after Alex Jones for saying it was a hoax it'll come to me so so those are the things that I think about when I read yet another story yet another item where a kid clearly has trouble and where you cannot say, well, the parents shouldn't have bought him Weapon X, all all of these homes. That's like saying, you know, your kid clobbered somebody to death with with a steam iron and and it's your fault for having a steam iron in the house. Everybody in rural Iowa probably has a weapon. I'd be surprised at the people who might not. It's It's a tool if you live in rural Midwest America and you and you hunt, which most of the folks there do. Uh, it is uh, it is it, it's like having a steak knife. It's how you provide food from the from the plate to your mouth. You have the shotgun to provide venison or other fare for your family, and uh, it it it's not for any other reason really than than that. And it's responsibly kept, and kids are expected to be responsible with them. So if you have a kid who's trouble, then what? You lock up the steam iron too? 773-763-WCPT. That's 763-9278. Sandy Hook. Thank you. You know what? Bless you for helping my failing memory. If if I didn't have you, I would I would just have to I don't know what I would do. I would, you would just hear me kind of mumbling incoherently for a solid three hours. That's how it would go. Just about 18 minutes after four o'clock, I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Around the town, Chicago, with Al Beslaw. The people in the audience were mostly, I would say, people in their 50s okay. and up. There were some young people. And at intermission, I asked this one this young kid, I think he was probably 19 or 20, what he felt. He said, this was cool. All these old people are wrapped up in one. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing when you get the young person's perspective. You know, Well, it's a lot different. Uh, oh. and, 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 you know, they don't know half the things that we know. Sunday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. 
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, that gives you under an hour till Patty Vasquez drives you home. She'll probably have lots to talk about today because yesterday she was not here. And you know how that goes. When your favorite talk show host is not here, what are we doing? We're just, we're collecting in our little sifting basket material to bring here and spread out for you. Like some exotic marketplace. Here, I collected all of these things. What do you think of them? What do you think of this Horrific story from Iowa, rural Iowa, small town Iowa, where it appears that a 17-year-old walked into his school and laid waste to five people and one uh, person who are injured, including one administrator and one student who is dead. Uh, It appears that the the person who did the shooting is also uh, deceased, and it's hard to know it's not a case of, you know, having these assault rifles or weapons available. They're all available. Well, it's true, and that's a problem, but that's not this problem. What is this problem that we're seeing that now when you're 17 years old, things get to such a pass that you walk into your school and begin shooting? Uh, this, from the text line, in my experience, there has always been an undercurrent of the mentality of this. It seems to have simmered down to the young population. Hmm. I remember days of driving up to Flagstaff from Phoenix where there were roads you didn't go down as they were to survivalist camps. Well, that's true, and the survivalists definitely teach their kids weaponry. That's for sure. This method of solving a problem has become the ordinary. I don't know about ordinary, but certainly not as shocking much to our sadness as as it used to be. Let's hear from John in Southern Illinois. Welcome. You're on WCPT. Hi. Hello. Yeah, I just wanted to recommend a a book. Uh, I don't remember the title. It was years ago when I read it. It's by three columnists from the Sun-Times. One of them was Eric Zorn um, about Lori Dan uh, and her husband, her ex-husband, wanted her to stop using his name. Her maiden name was Wasserman. I don't blame him for not wanting his name dismerged. She was seeing 10 different psychiatrists, all of whom were prescribing, none of whom caught on that she was seeing anyone else. She stored raw meat under the sofa cushions because she didn't believe in refrigeration. She, she was, was so yeah, She was really, really, really. I mean, if you want to see who would have been a good candidate for uh, inpatient care, that that would have been well uh, prescribed at that point. Thank you, John. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah, that, Eric Zorn may very well have been one of the authors of that uh, book. There were several books. I do know that my podcasting partner, uh, Mark. Marcy Persky um, was sent, she worked for United Press International at the time when there still was a United Press International, and they sent her to cover that story, and she had kids the same age as the little kids who were killed, and uh, that was when she switched from being a beat reporter and to uh, editor and also doing entertainment. I think there's, there you can have a lifetime of reporting disturbing stories, and then there's that one that somehow worms its way in past all of your armor. And Lori Dan, for sure. I remember that hostage situation with those little kids just unfolding over a period of many hours, it seemed. 
And uh, then after the fact, it turned out that there were all kinds of signs. And of course, we don't know what will happen. Um, I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've shifted my blame, uh, my blame dispersal. I used to just say, well, it's the parents. Parents paying no attention. The parents, the parents, the parents. I don't feel that way anymore. I have been proven wrong by you and others who have pointed out to me that you can be the best parent in the world and still have a kid with serious problems. And I would point to you, for example, uh, one of the young people who shot uh, the, the numerous students at Columbine and then they killed themselves. One of the mothers has made it her mission in life to speak about gun violence and kids and mental health. And she has made, I would say, a searching and fearless moral inventory of everything that she could have done differently And it's pretty clear if you ever hear her speak that if you ever hear her speak, it's not like she was checked out. It's not like she wasn't paying attention. This text, I grew up on the west side, went to high school on the north side, and the first time I saw drugs and a gun in school was in high school. I couldn't believe it, but there it was. I never saw a gun at my privileged, privileged, privileged high school, but plenty of drugs. All the, I mean, it was almost a lethal combination. It was kids with lots of time, lots of privacy, lots of money. And if you want to know who really is supporting Chicago's drug dealing community, a lot of it is the suburban kids. They think they're so liberal. I mean, what, if they're boycotting plastic containers, you want to do something for the world? Quit buying drugs. Quit buying illegal drugs. Quit coming in from your suburban lair and buying drugs here so that the kids here get arrested and you go back to Winnetka. I knew those kids. I grew up around some of those kids. And it's it, it, it is it's going to be interesting to see in the next generation now that pot is more legal and we're not locking up people for using it and we're not locking up people for selling it in most cases. We are about to experience a, a real economic shift, both in the cost of, of incarcerating people that we no longer incarcerate and in the cost of people who were in trouble for using, who may or may not. I don't know if you saw the data came out this week. It's been some anniversary of when Colorado made recreational pot legal. It was the first state to do so. And there's there's a great deal to be said for admitting you're wrong. The former, I believe, former governor of Colorado, who was highly opposed, several other highly uh, high elected state officials who were opposed because they felt that the rate of drug use and uptake would would radically increase. It really hasn't. But it saved the state a fortune in police services and prison services and it has produced some kind of whopping amount of tax revenue, just a whopping big amount of tax revenue. I, I am looking forward to um, to seeing what, what is the story of this young person if we ever find out. And, and weirdly, I keep hoping that these 
horrible flame outs will shed some kind of light on um, how these young people get to be so disturbed. I don't know if they ever will, but we got to keep trying. Someone else texted me. I remember Lori Dan as well. The case stayed with me. Her parents uh, were very at fault with her. I think not in terms of making her ill, but in the denial. The denial is amazing. My kid's not the problem. My kid, I can handle this. And part of it is understandable. You know, you want to believe you can handle it. You don't want to believe your kid is that ill. It's been some years now. I think some of the mental health stigma has has been rubbed off. And perhaps we can hope that now parents are more willing to get help for their kids. We can only hope. 428 WCPT Live Local Progressive Tory writer in for Joan Esposito. Little union time coming up because, yeah. We're we're union proud here at WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. It's good to be here with you, 432 WCPT Live, Local and Progressive. It's time for our usual check-in. New to me, uh, old friend to you, Tom Siren from the Sheet Metal Workers, Smart Local 265. I'm really glad to have an opportunity to meet you. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks uh, for having me. Of course, it is our pleasure to have you here with us. Question for you. Well, first of all, did you have anything on your agenda that you wanted to get to today? Uh, I just want to do some talking about uh, the Biden policies that are really helping labor. Oh, that would be so awesome. I, I have been very dismayed to see that a lot of young people who theoretically um, are organizing their, their businesses still have no understanding or limited understanding of what the Biden administration does to support organized labor. So let's start there. Yeah, I mean, some of the first things that Bi- uh, President Biden did was came into office and he, he, he went right with to a pro-labor agenda, starting with his, you know, Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. I mean, very, very pro-labor person. Uh, and obviously Marty's moved on and now we're uh, there. Uh, uh, we have Julie Sue. That's the uh, I guess she's the uh, temper. I don't think she's been approved yet but anyway she's a very pro-labor secretary also yeah we finally have people uh, in washington who aren't trying to undercut labor as the secretaries of labor so that's that's reassuring yeah very it's it's unreal that you know a lot of people don't even realize the amount of uh problems it can uh uh, an anti-union uh department of labor can create for the country and it it really uh you know, it really hampers unions, too, because, you know, we're out there trying to fight for the working class, and it's hard when we're 
fight an uphill battle against our own, you know, elected officials. It sort of made my heart expand with with a, something approaching love when I saw the president putting on an auto workers T-shirt. And I know it was symbolic, but it was the right symbol at the right time and the right guy to, to wear it. Um, I haven't had a chance to meet you before, so I'd just be curious to know, why do you suppose so many union workers in the last election and possibly the next one, the Democrats have to work really hard to get blue-collar workers back into the Democratic voting camp. What is what is the explanation for this? Uh, Being on the inside of our union, we could see it's it's generally about, you know, about 40 percent of workers don't support uh, what was called labor friendly politicians. You know, they they actually, you know, they what do you say? Cut off your nose to spite your face. Oh, I yeah. feel. Oh yeah. Um, and it's it's we try to you know it's a very delicate situation as far as talking about it because a lot of people are very passionate about it and they're right away it's they want to argue but we just try to we just come across and say hey we're not we're going after we're we're supporting politicians that support us and that's the the only thing we look at because without our without our pocketbook. Nothing really works. I mean, you're if you if you have no money, you know you're not gonna your household is gonna be you know very stressed. Um, you're not gonna be able to you know buy the things you want to buy. Maybe if you're into guns, hard to buy guns with no money. You know what I'm saying? So uh, stuff like that. It's we're trying to just say we don't we don't support we don't want to even talk about some of the other stuff going on. What's important to us is how their how their stance on labor is. That's where we really. Uh, we try to connect, and it's very important that they need to understand that they're they're not only voting for their pocketbook today, but their their future in general with you know good pay and good benefits. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about about that. I don't know if your um, union represents any of the folks who are engaged in the um, the greening of America, the solar production, the installation. Do you represent any of the folks who are who are doing some of that work right now? Yeah, so what we're really um on our end of it, so the solar is more of the electricians, but we're also more involved in the heat pumps. So the heat pumps are kind of what is used to heat and cool your house. Right. Traditionally, you have a gas furnace and a, an electric air conditioner. Uh, a heat pump is like like an air conditioner, but it also produces heat. So it's it's a, basically it's an electric powered. Furnace. And the president uh, issued a, a bunch of money in his um, America, I forget what they called it, the works, what the heck is that thing called? They kept changing the name of it. But but his, his big budget, the bipartisan budget that he passed, had yeah. money for projects like helping owners, homeowners in, install those sorts of things. And your union and your yeah. local has participated in that. About how much work has come to the sheet metal workers as a result? of that bill well in in the residential side there's been quite a bit because not only so we have a program called i want smart so if you look go to iwantsmart.com you can look up uh qualified contractors in your area and you you can get a rebate for using union contractors of uh, up to two hundred dollars per piece of equipment up to eight hundred dollars plus on top of that with the um the rebates coming from the federal government it could be anywhere from you know two thousand to twenty four hundred dollars in rebates towards a 
a heat pump system. So um, you add all that together, you can get quite a bit of money off your off of your new installation, and it really, uh, you know, it, it is spurring work for us just just because that's kind of what we do, and the um, you know, and commercially too. I mean, more commercial buildings are getting into more energy efficient systems because their old archaic systems are just not they're just costing them too much money and the government is also giving building owners subsidies that will help them upgrade their um their buildings to more energy efficient heating and cooling systems well people so really want to do that, that. They, they really want to do oh, that yeah. i mean i uh, we looked into what things were uh, possible for our hundred and something year old house and unfortunately and i i don't know if your union is is actively lobbying for this but some of the rules about um, what what is safe don't seem to have kept up with what the technology looks like now. Are you finding that when people want to put in a piece of equipment that's environmentally uh, forward thinking that they have to work hard with their city or their township to make the city understand that this is a good thing? I think the cities are be are they're pretty get to be uh, pretty well educated now uh, with the push for energy efficiency and and the um, the the energy codes are just going um, you know they're just getting more and more stringent every every time they rewrite them so I think the villages and stuff are kind of on board with with that sort of stuff I think it's more the homeowner not being aware of what's out there. Uh, the new technology and trying to get them educated on it so they know they're just not getting a, a new, hey, I need my furnace. Well, you know, it comes down to money sometimes. Sometimes people just say, I can't afford this, or so they'll go after the cheapest route. But we want them to know that, you know, okay, you can spend a little money up front here, but in the long run, in the life of the, the equipment, the lifespan of the equipment, you're going to get, you know, it's going to be a lot cheaper to run over that 20 or 25 years compared to what you're getting for cheap. So I think a lot of it has to do with educating the public. It, it is uh, important. In, in my case, we were not candidates for a heat pump, but we wanted to do solar. And I'll just share this story with you. The city apparently in Chicago has some rule that your house has to be able to withstand a 100-year snow, which, A, we get less of, and B, it's a historic right. neighborhood. If we get a 100-year snow, the entire block is going to be right. flat as a pancake. So uh, these right. are the kinds of things where I, I have found um, the unions have been very helpful in educating um, the the city about what's realistic and what is possible. Right. And this is where the consumer can work together with union contractors to contact the city and say, hey, you know, I want to do this thing. It's good for the city. It's good for the environment. And you need to you need to figure out a way to help make it happen so that everybody wins, um, including union labor. By the way, I just have to say that at one point between two adults in our house, we had um, three unions. We're now down to just one union because I had 
two unions merge and the spousal unit started his okay. own company. But we're still a strong union household. <laughs> so it wasn't good. my That's fault. Very good. Our, yeah, I was like, look, we've got we could practically play a, a poker with a full deck of union cards here. Um, <laughs> Just about. So tell me about, we've we've had on uh, the show when I've filled in, I've had Chicago Women in the Trades on. I've talked to people who do uh, apprenticeships through the Evanston Rebuilding Warehouse, which is now called something else. I know that the sheet metal workers have an apprenticeship program. Can you talk a little bit about how you are working to bring people into the trades who might not be aware that there are training programs? Programs for them? Yeah, definitely. That's what I do. I'm an organizer, so I'm the one on the streets. I'm the one going to all the uh, career fairs and the, um, you know, different events to try to draw people in, just to try to educate them. So we do a lot of career fairs at high schools, which is a big thing. As of, you know, as of late, it's been getting more and more popular with all the high schools. Uh, so we, we do, we go from, I don't know, I'd say we probably do about 20 to 25 a year where we'll go to a high school, either it's a career fair or we're just going there to talk to a selective group of students that are interested in, in the building trades. And uh, basically you just, you know, talk to them like we're talking and tell them what we're all about and how our apprenticeship is, you know, it's, it's free of cost. There's no, there's no tuition cost. Uh, you're getting uh, basically four years of free education. Uh, you're getting paid while you go to school. You know, our our school goes one week every 10 weeks. And in that week of school that you're attending, classroom school, you actually get paid your wage to go to school. So that's, you know, that's pretty unheard of. That You know, not only we, it doesn't cost you anything, you're actually getting paid to go to school. It is impressive. So, do you find that your programs yeah. are fully subscribed or do you have a waiting list of people who want to come in or is there usually space for someone who's motivated and wants to learn? You know, we are, we, there is a waiting list. There's no doubt. It's, it's a very competitive, uh, you know, competitive atmospheric because we wish we had, you know, a job to take everybody that was interested. But, you know, the fact is that there's only, it, it's like opportunity based. So it's, you know, it, it comes and goes with the amount of work that's out there. So we can't just take, say we're going to take a uh, hundred people. We just can't pick that number because we can't, uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to put them to work. So we, what we do is we, we take, we try to take about 50 uh, per year, which is about 25 service techs and and 25 sheet metal mechanics. Um, that's what we our goal is, and then you know kind of go from there. Um, that sounds like a good place to start. Let let me ask you this because I am female. Uh, all the way, female. And uh, I know yep. women who have um, trained for the trades and then felt yep. unwelcome in them. What does that look like for your union, uh, the sheet metal workers? And what is the environment like for people who may not have traditionally worked in your field before? So that right now, that's a huge topic with which Smart International. Uh, they want people to know that we don't care what your gender is. We want, we want people that want to work and it doesn't matter where you come from, what nationality, what gender, like I said, it's just a matter of if you want an opportunity to work, we're going to provide it for you. And, uh, the women, we, you know, we, we have, um, 
you know, we have quite a few women in our in our actual local, and uh, we're very proud of them because they are very they're very uh, proud women, and they get out there and they don't uh, they're not you know they're not afraid you know and they're definitely good role mo- models for other women in the trade uh, because they're not um, they're not intimidated by the men and to, and to be fair too today's construction site compared to 32 years ago when I started is night and day. You know, we were borderline, borderline Neanderthals back then, and you know we we've evolved in construction to be more of a uh, you know it's a lot more streamlined, it's a lot more organized. Um, are, it, are you telling me that you had not, some apologies to make at some point in your career? Is that what you're <laughs> telling me? Not so much me, but of witnessing some stuff maybe that I you know that I've seen and. You know, but I just, you know, I just remember the old days, you know, like I said, I I got in in 1991 and I remember, you know, the cat calling and, you know, and not oh, me Lord. personally, but I remember it happening. Oh, no, of course yeah, not just, you. Never you. No, no, no. But, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, it's funny when I run into those guys, it, sometimes I just look at them and I, and I, back when I was, got more of those, I mean, no, I'm, I'm not in that category, I don't think much anymore, but I used to just turn around and look at them and go, you have daughters? You have a mother? You have right. a sister? Right. Yeah. Is it, would you like somebody talking right. to her like that? And usually they just shut right, right up. But most people just, right. you know, don't have the moxie or whatever you want to call it that it takes right. to turn around and, and write back in their faces. But I really right. think right. that to you, to your point about bringing women in and people who haven't been represented before, I think that... It's good for men to work around people who are a little different than they are, and it's good for them to have daughters. And part of the reason why I think workplaces have improved so much is that uh, men are taking more active role with parenting, and they look down at their kid and they think, you know, I would like my daughter maybe to have a job as good as mine. I'd like her to have the opportunity to do this work. And then they get to think about what kind of workplace they've created. And then they apologize, which I love. Um, Yeah, yeah, I love the apology. It's definitely a different world today, and it's way more welcoming for women. And we welcome women to get involved. We we do want them. So um, if women are listening out there, you know, go to uh, marchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmarchmar
I don't just mean like uppity. That's fine. Go ahead. But rude. Like my favorite, my favorite message last week was you should not be on the air. I'm like, well, I'm going to have lots to say about that on the air. Then they go away. So uh, we are speaking with Tom Siren, who is putting up with this very strange turn of events that's not Joan Esposito. And he's speaking about <laughs> smart to 65, the sheet metal workers. And he's put up with me, and I'm delighted to have him. And I noticed, Tom, on your website, you mentioned that you have just recently launched a veterans club, which sounds pretty darn yeah. cool. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, actually, we had a little. Uh, uh, just I was meeting with uh, Chris James. Our he's one of our instructors, and he also heads up the veterans committee. And and uh, we're actually our first. They've had a, I think one or two meetings so far, and we're doing a little uh, a little event uh, Saturday uh, the twentieth in January twentieth. We're getting some of the veterans together. We're actually going to a, a American Legion in, in Elmhurst, and we're actually do some do some work for them on their HVAC system. Oh, it's kind of like uh, to, to help them out like a charity. That's lovely. And uh, Yeah, so it's like veteran, veterans helping veterans. It's it's kind of a nice uh, nice deal for the community. And, and uh, yeah, you know, we feel real good about doing stuff like that. So we're always looking to help out uh, any way we can with the veterans. And, you know, um, the, the committee is a really good thing. It just kind of kicked off um, – a couple months ago, and what was been, the impetus really behind that? So did the veterans in the union suggest it, or did you just sort of look around and say, "Hey, we've got a lot of veterans in in the uh, local"? Or how did it come to be? Yeah, I think I think it was more a uh, a combination of our our um, our manager John Daniel wanted to get more. He wants us to be not just us. He wants the union to be more involved with the members in different ways, and we. And Chris James is, like I said, one of our instructors. He's a he's a veteran, so he he said he would definitely had an idea of getting the veterans committee together to try to get all the veterans um, engaged more, and it's been working really well. So, um, and like I said, this will be our first little event together that we're doing. It's just going to be a, you know a handful of us there, but you know maybe probably about ten ten of us, and it's not a ton of work, but it's stuff they need done, and the American Legion. Um, you know, obviously, it, it, most of them are most of the members there are retired, and they can't get around like they used to. So we'll go there and do what they need done, and and uh, you know, make them happy, and it'll make us happy for nobody's, helping them out. Nobody's going to cry from emotion because you all are veterans. But I'll bet if you weren't, you would be like it would be a very emotional thing. To, I mean, to see whenever I've been part of a radio station effort on behalf of, of veterans, it's weird, and maybe it's just since Vietnam that it, my sense of things is is that especially Vietnam-era veterans are not used to having the public take an interest in their well-being uh, in the way that we should. Right. So I, I'm excited right. that you're doing this, and I'm pleased that it, it's come to this. Do you know of any other uh, unions that also have veterans committees? This seems like a great idea. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of, I've never really heard too much about them other than you know, I've heard the word and heard, you know, heard about different veteran committees, but not so much with the union. So I think it, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there is, but maybe we started something that'll kind of spread a little bit throughout some of the other local. Okay. Bad, around bad sheet metal worker pun then. You are on the cutting edge of 
Tracy. Bad, bad. Just, just ignore me. Just, just ignore me. Uh, I'm really glad that, that you're, awesome. you're doing that. Yes, on the cutting edge of veterans representation in your union local and in the work that you're doing. I'm just so excited that you're, I, I guess it's emotional for me to know that you're doing that. And 10 people, that's a, that's a significant number of, um, workers to do a lot of work. Um, and I know oh, yeah. a lot of the veterans halls that I've seen, I know there was just one that went, um, for sale. I'm trying to remember where it was, but the, but the older veterans are having trouble keeping their buildings in, in proper condition. And it's got to upset them because as veterans, uh, they're, they're used to having things in, in top shape. That's what's expected of them right. during their service. And I'm sure that it galls them when that doesn't happen. So both as a physical uh, gesture and, and the work that you're doing and an emotional gesture to show them that somebody cares and the pride that they will have in seeing this work when it's complete. I commend you thoroughly on, on doing it. Thanks so much for spending time and doing all of this that you do and just being, whenever I see organized labor doing right in the community, reaching out in the community, uh, bringing in people for these good union jobs, it makes me happy. So you made me happy today, Tom Siren. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad I did. Thank you. And you won't have to put up with me next time. I think you'll have Joan when you come back to visit us again. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and, and again, till next time. Just about 4.58, I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Don't forget Patty Vasquez coming up just after 5. We are live, local, and progressive WCPT. And again, feel free to get a hold of me on my socials. It's spelled G-U-R-I, Ryder like those rental trucks. What can I do? It's my name. Talk to you later, and thanks, Lady B.